Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is powered by the Yamaha R7. The R7 is part of Yamaha's R world and the R7 is your gateway to a new generation of supersport machine. In our first segment, editor Don Williams takes to the urban streets on Royal Enfield's new Hunter 350. This is not an ADV bike as the name might imply. It's actually targeted at the city rider and it's powered by the company's single cylinder 350 motor that also powers a couple of other models too. Don gives us his impressions on whether the Hunter's modest price is reflected in the quality of this new bike. In our second segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with Drew Alexander. Drew has spent his career as parts manager for both Bob's BMW and Batley's BMW dealerships in Maryland. And indeed, he's now returned to Bob's famous dealership. But Drew is a lot more than that. He's the president of his local BMW club, and he's on the board of the National BMW Riders Association. He's actually hosting the upcoming rally in West Virginia in September. So, from all of us here at Motos and Friends, we hope you enjoy this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of riders meets a new generation of supersport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque and it provides you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. The 2023 Royal Enfield Hunter 350 is the third 350 in the uh, Royal Enfield lineup to make it to the United States. Now, this is a motorcycle. The Hunter 350 is a bike that has been out previously in India and other markets, but finally has made it to the United States. Now, the uh, two other bikes are the Meteor 350, which is a cruiser, uh, which has the 17-inch uh, rear wheel and 19-inch front wheel. And uh, you know, it's got kind of the feet forward. It's not like an excessively cruiser type of bike, but it, it's a cruiser style. And then they have the Classic, which is more of an upright bike with an 18-inch rear wheel and a 19-inch front that gives it a, uh, and it has like chrome and it looks really retro. It's not as retro as the original retro Royal fields that you might have been familiar with 10 years ago, where they really looked like bikes from the 50s. This still has a, a modern motor, this, though it's still an air-cooled single overhead cam uh, two valve motor it's not super modern but it's not it's not the air cooled push rod sort of setup so it's it's a, a more modern it's a totally modern bike but with uh 
what they called classic styling. So you had the classic for the people who wanted the, the cool retro look, you had the media for the people who wanted the relaxed cruiser look, and now you have the Hunter 350, which is uh, for basically the urban guy who wants to go riding around. Now it's funny, when I first heard the name of the Hunter 350, I was thinking, oh, well, that's like another variation on the Himalaya because, well, you know, a hunter, like you're gonna be out hunting. Well, this is not for hunting is like a off-road bike. This is for urban safaris where you're going to <laughs> town and you're hunting for whatever you might be hunting for in town. So it's, it's purely a street bike. Uh, and uh, the, before we even get started, one of the most important things to know is that this motorcycle costs $3,999. Now that's a deal, uh, you know, wow. so, wow. You, so the first question I think a lot of people have is, is, is this a piece of junk for $3,999? Is it, can mo the motorcycle be any good? And so, although I didn't start out with this when I wrote the story, uh, actually Nick had to remind me, our uh, senior editor, Nick DeSena had to remind me to talk about the fit and finish and uh, to be perfectly blunt, I took the fit and finish for granted the bike just looks good. I mean, when you come up to it, it looks good. The finish is good. The paint is really good. Uh, the bike, the styling isn't a hundred percent. You know, there's all these, these little weird things that they are. And part of that's from using a, a, the same motor in different, you know, applications. But the fit and finish of the bike is really nice. And when you start it up, it 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 sounds good. The motor doesn't sound clattery or like, oh, what's is this gonna? How long is this gonna last? Kind of thing. It just has a good sound. Now the switch gear is a little cheapy plasticky, but you know, you're paying $39.99. You know, they have to cut some corners somewhere, but boy, it has beautiful paint. Uh, the one I had just looked fantastic. And uh, it was two-tone, had some pinstriping. I had badging on the uh, side covers. It's really a good looking motorcycle that does not say, hey, I only cost $4,000, everybody look at me. It's, you know, it just says, hey, I'm a cool bike, check this out. And so wherever you ride it, you know, riding around, people look at it, they look at the bike and they go, wow, that's cool. And that's, you know, so always talk about, that's a big important part of motorcycle riding. I mean, I like the experience of riding, but I also like being cool. Some people don't like being cool, I like being cool. And the Hunter 350 is a cool bike. And in some ways there's not a lot to talk about about the performance of the bike because it's a very basic urban transport, urban mobility sort of motorcycle. Uh, it's got a five-speed transmission, you know, manual clutch, nothing unusual about that, exactly what you'd expect from a motorcycle. It's got twin shocks, uh, the fork, the uh, fork legs have little gaiters on them to give them a little bit of a retro look. Although in this case, Royal Enfield, they talked about how they're trying to move the brand forward into the modern era while still they'll still have the classic bikes and and they'll still want to rely on the fact that the motorcycle company's been around for over 120 years now they're trying to also build motorcycles that look contemporary and the royal enfield hunter 350 has a contemporary spin on the retro style because again it's still twin shock kind of a bobbery fenders uh air-cooled motor, you know, it, does, it doesn't have uh, any plastic, so there's no angular kind of fairing like you have like on, let's say, an MT-07, Yamaha MT-07, you know, there's none of the futuristic look to it, but it's not a 
old looking motorcycle. It looks like a motorcycle built in 2023. So uh, they're, they're, you know, just kind of putting it all together in, in, in a more, in, a, in another interesting way, because I like the Meteor and I like the Classic. Those are two great motorcycles, super fun to ride. And uh, this is the least expensive of them, again, at, at $4,000. And can't really tell where they cut the price exactly. Uh, the frame is a new frame. Uh, it doesn't have any, uh, the use of the motor is a stressed member. It doesn't have any uh, bottom tubes. So it makes the bike about 20 pounds lighter. Uh, maybe they save some money on metal there and that was a place that they could, they could cut some corner uh, for a lower price. So it, it doesn't have that feeling of a cheap bike. Uh, like I said, other than the switch gear, which is super basic, super plasticky. And, but other than that, uh, you know, the main components like the tank just looks great. The engine looks good. Suspension components don't look bad. Uh, the seats, the kind of a banana seat, but it's super comfortable. And of course the proof in the pudding for me as a motorcycle rider is how much fun is it to ride around town? Because it's not intended to be a touring bike or a, a, even a sport bike really. It's, it's about being an, an in-town bike. And uh, I did some testing in San Diego, which uh, has a little bit better roads than Los Angeles, but still has some problems out there. And uh, it's, it's a really good, it's a really good bike. Uh, you just, there's not much to talk about in that it just does everything kind of intuitively. You know, it has the 350 CC power and it's not like a buzzy 350, you know, uh, some of the Japanese bikes in that, price range would uh and displacement range would it might have a double red cam motor maybe even a twin so you're looking at just a, a lump a big you know thumper and so the uh throttle response is not it's clean it's a clean throttle response but it's not a, a snappy one you know, the bike builds revs in a, a slow slower and more predictable manner it's not like it's it, it, you know pe somebody can say it's slow and if you were an experienced rider and you rode faster bikes, it does would seem slow. But for the what it needs to do, getting around town, moving between traffic, you know, here in California, we can split lanes and filter. You know, the the power is a good smart power for what the bike's supposed to be. You don't want an overly responsive uh, throttle response in town because you get yourself into trouble. That's exactly why a Ducati Diablo, for example, has a you know urban mode. <laughs> You know, they have that mode where it's like, hey, you're in town. You don't need 200 horsepower. This bike has 20 horsepower. So you might think, well, 20 horsepower is not enough. But the torque comes on super early, you know, down below 4,000 RPM. And it's 20 foot pounds, just like it's 20 horsepower. Also, it's 20 foot pounds of torque at the maximum. But all the power is in the, the from the idle up to mid range. And so when you're just riding around, you know, you're not in town, you're not running at the top of your RPM range. That's doesn't make any sense. So you're running at a lower RPM. So there's always that pull when you need it. It's not a snappy pull, but it's it's a it's a predictable and smart in the city kind of pull. So the bike rides around just fine. And uh, the suspension's not plush. You know, that's another place where you're buying a four thousand dollar motorcycle. You're not going to be getting, you know, only in suspension, or only in suspension style action. So, it it works well enough. It takes the edges off the potholes, the dips. Uh, it wasn't bottoming out or anything. It wasn't jolting me. It wasn't plush, but it was perfectly fine. 
you know, again, you know what you're getting into when you buy, a, you know, an inexpensive motorcycle and a smaller motorcycle. And it just, it just, the suspension works, works quite well. Uh, the seating position is just very standard. You're sitting right upright, foot pegs are right below your butt, right where you expect them to be. Uh, your hands go right to the grips. There's nothing odd about the, the ergonomics of the bike, which can sometimes happen with some less expensive, you know, off brands. And, you know, Royal Enfield is, not, is no longer an off brand. Uh, they were bragging this. They've imported 100,000 motorcycles into North America in the last year, and that's a lot of motorcycles. And they're selling nearly, you know, around a million in, you know, worldwide. So they're, they're a big company now. They're, Royal Enfield is, is making that move from being like this kind of odd boutique brand based on motorcycles from the 50s to a totally contemporary modern concern. And it's, uh, it's impressive. Yeah, they're, they're legit. I, I'd agree with that. Definitely. Yeah, they keep bringing out these bikes. They have the, the two 650 twins and there's a little bit of room for them. Oh, actually, I take that back. And they have two 650 twins right now. There will be a third soon, a, a, a cruiser version called the Meteor, Super Meteor 650. And uh, that's coming. Uh, they have the two Himalayas, the standard, uh, you know, kind of adventure Himalaya. And then they have the Himalaya Scram, which is uh, a city style scrambler version of that. And uh, so they have, you know they have they're they're expanding their range and they're not again they're not relying purely on retro cool they have all sorts of interesting variations and and very uh, unusual designs that in a way like something like the himalayan that, that's a 411 cc adventure bike you know single cylinder again two valve air cooled there's nothing to compete it doesn't compete against anything it's its own deal and this bike the meteor 350 is definitely going to be going up against bikes like the Honda CB300F and the Yamaha uh, uh, MT-03 Kawasaki Ninja 400, but it's about a thousand dollars less. So, you know, they're, they're, they're saying, Hey, check us, check us out. Now the Hunter 350 does not have the performance of those bikes because those bikes have much more sophisticated engines, but depending on what you're doing, you don't need that. Uh, now, part of being an urban bike and re engine requir requirements, though, is you you are going to, even in Los Angeles, wherever, you're going to want to hop on a freeway now and then. Now, maybe if you live in San Francisco, you can avoid the freeway because they got all the freeways out of town. But in Los Angeles or New York, there's expressways. You know, an urban area, you are likely to want to get up to freeway speeds. And the good news is, is the Hunter 350 is good for up to up to about 70 miles an hour, you're good. Uh, it will go, I got it up over 80. I think I might've been going downhill a bit, maybe tucked in, <laughs> maybe a right. little bit over 80, 82. I can't remember exactly, but right around that. But you're kind of good for 70. And then anything over 70 requires a lot of room to, to you know, you're not, if you're going 70 and you need to accelerate, you need to plan ahead and you need to be patient because it's not going to go from 70 to 80 very fast, but it'll get up to, you know, 65, let's say, especially urban freeways where 55 is often the speed limit, it'll get up to 55 pretty good. So you're, you're, you're going with this flow of traffic decently. You know, if you're on uh, some of the LA freeways, uh, I can think of the Glendale freeway where there's a big long hill climb and it's, you know, people are going 80 
you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be, you're going to want to stick under the right lane or you're going to want to go on the surface streets. But if you're on just the Hollywood freeway or even the Santa Monica freeway, the, the more flat freeways that, you know, have a 55 mile per hour speed limit, you're good. And you, you can play, you know, with the big boys out there and not feel like you're going to get swallowed up. Uh, you know, it's not a touring bike, but uh, I did take it out and do some canyon riding and uh, the bike handles really well. Uh, again, in fact, it handles more better than the power in a way. It's like there's not enough power to overwhelm the handling at all. So you never feel like, oh, well, this isn't, isn't quite, you know, th there's a lot of power here and I can't quite handle it. It's like it is that, that, that chassis can handle, can handle a 500, no problem. So you always feel completely in control of the bike, but you also feel like the motor is kind of holding you back. And now, yeah, I'm an experienced motorcyclist, but I also ride a lot of motorcycles and understand them. And even I think newer riders might go, yes, yeah, it's kind of, when I get on the throttle, I'm not getting that, you know, you're just, you're just controllably blow, building speed. Uh, the only thing you have to kind of watch out for if you're riding uh, it as a, you know, in the canyons. And here in Los Angeles, we have Mulholland Drive that goes right through, you know, Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles uh, in the hills. And we have canyons in the Hollywood Hills. So there's, there is canyon riding even in, in urban settings and, and other cities have things, you know, areas like that. And so in the case of the Royal Enfield, also when you're out in the, the, the sticks and you're kind of wanting to keep up with your friends. Let's say one of your friends has a, a CB300F and you want to, I'm not going to let him get away. You know, one thing you have to watch out for is the brakes. <laughs> the brakes, which you don't even notice as, as being soft in town. In fact, they're kind of nicely soft. You know, when you grab, you know, the front brake, you don't have any kind of jerk, you know, super smooth engagement, super, you know, super controllable. The more you grip, the more it slows down. And again, in a city, you have less demands for the brakes. You don't want really strong brakes in the city because you'd constantly be, you know, jerking the front end. So the brakes are, are quite nice in the city. But what you realize out of when you start going, let's say if you're going 50 and you're going into a corner that you that the front brake, it's because it's just a one, you know, single 300 millimeter disc in the front is not that strong. I mean, it's really not that strong. The first time you do it, you might go, oh, wait a minute. But there's a secret weapon, the rear brake. It has a huge rear disc brake that has a ton of power. Now I know, Arthur, that you're not a big rear brake fan. In fact, you may have never used a rear brake in your life. Is that, isn't that the case? I only use a rear brake to control wheelies, that's all. Yeah. But uh, not, not in normal riding, no. Right. <laughs> well, I'm kind of a, yeah, I'll use the rear brake. Well, anyway, this bike has a 270 millimeter rear disc. That's big. Wow. Front's a 300. So when you're coming into that corner, if you also use the rear brake, it's like you're throwing down an anchor. That bike stops fast. You know, it, it, it just slows down. So you kind of, I, after I learned that, when I went, when I got back into town, I was riding around, I was like, I was just using the rear brake more. You know, you can just, just <laughs> keep your hands on the bars, just tap that rear brake and that bike slowed down as much as you, you would want, you know, and it's super controllable, super easy. It has ABS. So you're not going to be, you know, sliding the rear brake. And it's funny because okay. All right. most, most experienced motorcycle riders, they use the front brake. That's the brake. That's where all the power is. In this case, that's not the case. 
you know, the rear, I would say, you know, it's kind of, I, I have to get somebody out with a tape measure. I might even be able to stop that bike faster with the rear brake only than the front brake only. You know, it was that, that strong. And maybe it was just, you know, I was immune to the front. Every time I used the rear brake, I was also using the front brake. So I have the front brake on, but boy, when I added that rear, it was like, kind of like a turbo in reverse. You know, it's like, it slowed down. So that, that was kind of one of the things that really stuck out to me was that that's a, that is a, a, a real strong usable rear brake and and you see that on cruisers sometimes on certain harley brands or harley models yeah uh, for sure yeah you know the front brake will be really good on some of them and you're like oh yeah front brake but others are like oh, yeah, front brake isn't much but you hit that rear brake it's like oh well, there that's where they put the braking and so that's uh kind of a little standout part about this uh, oh and also in the canyons they have these tires called seat zoom xl and seat is spelled c-e-a-t not s-e-a-t and it's an indian brand so it's you know local guys making tires for them but it's a giant company they make billions of tires and uh the seat zoom xl is also a little bit lower spec than the the tires used on the classic and the uh meteor but they're 17 inch tires so you have these like okay, little, good. a little bit yeah, you have 17-inch wheels, so you have a little bit less expensive tires, but really, for the amount of power that motor, that engine puts out, they're fine. I never was like, oh, the front end's pushing it. If you're riding like that, you've got the wrong bike, you know? It's like, the tires are fine, but if you like, you could put Dunlop, you know, Sportmax Qualifier Q5Ss on there. You know, they, they, they have that size tire that would fit this bike. So you could have the, the highest level of sport bike, you know, street legal sport bike tire on this bike. If you want, you know, I don't think anybody in the world would do that because a pair of those tires probably costs <laughs> is out of the price right. range of somebody who buys a $4,000 motorcycle. But right. kind of the point is, is that, that you can put whatever tires you want on it and uh, you could stick with the seat. If I don't even do they, I think they, they do import them in the United States. So you probably get them from a dealer, but, but you could get an inexpensive tire like a, but that are still good, like a Shinko or something like that and, and, and have good performance and more than enough performance for what the chassis and the motor deliver. And so, again, that keeps the expense of the bike down and just makes bike so much more approachable to to a lot of people and for a new rider this bike is is, is awesome you know uh, the clutch is easy to use it's not super light but it engages over a nice wide stretch so there's no kind of grabbiness again the front and rear brake are not grabby as strong as the rear brake is it's not touchy i mean you have to put some pressure on the the pedal for to to, to slow down but once you do it's going to slow down and you have abs to bail you out so that's that's good the front brake will never you know catch you out unless maybe you're leaning over and you grabbed it as hard as you could or something you know did something completely ridiculous but uh this motorcycle is very forgiving to a new rider uh, if you happen to twist the throttle too hard it's not going to go rocketing out from under you it's just going to move along a little faster than you might have expected but not in any sort of you know alarming way so you know it's funny whenever we talk about motorcycles like this you know it's easy for somebody who's an experienced guy and has been riding for a while oh that sounds boring that's stupid 
And ah, I would, I would want to buy a motorcycle like that. But for a lot of people, that's the kind of motorcycle you want. And, and if, and a lot of those people, guys that I'm talking about, don't ride in urban areas. They ride in the canyons and they ride out wherever, you know, they want to do track day or whatever. So in urban areas, you don't want an excessively powerful or responsive motorcycle. You want a motorcycle with all the edges smoothed down so that you don't get into trouble in such tight confines. And this bike coming from India where, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of bikes, a lot of stuff going on. You don't want a motorcycle that will get you into trouble. And uh, this is it. This, this, this won't. And also part of it's uh, the functionality of it in town is it's also a slightly smaller, I say smaller, more compact motorcycle than the Meteor 350 and the Classic 350. They shortened okay. up the wheel. They shortened up the wheelbase a bit and and tightened the rake, so the bike's a little bit more maneuverable. The other bikes, it wasn't like they're not maneuverable. They're just they're just 350s, you know. So they're not big hulking bikes anyway. So even if they have kind of slow geometry, they're still easy to handle in town. Uh, this bike is even easier and uh, it weighs 400 pounds. So it's not super light. You know, it's, that's, that's, that's 400 pounds for a 350 that puts out 20 horsepower. It's fairly heavy. So again, this is where they, they've, 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 you know, saved some money. They're not using exotic lightweight aluminum chromoly or anything like that to lighten the bike. So it's uh you know, it's a solidly built bike, so it, it, it weighs, you know, like I said, 400 pounds, not super light, but they did tighten up the wheelbase, steepen the rake to give the bike a little bit more agility in town. And, uh, you know, it's not a huge difference from the other bikes, but it's, it's, it's there. And, you know, I think, I don't know that anybody's going to buy the bike because of that. I mean, if, if you're, if you walk into a Royal Enfield de dealership, realistically, you're going to, I think you're going to look at the uh, the hunter the classic and the meteor and you're going to buy the bike that you think is cool you know like well i see myself as on the cruiser bike because that's that's how i envision myself or oh i want to be a cool retro guy and i want chrome and i'm going to i'm going to get the classic or oh i just want this simple bike it's least expensive and it kind of has a, a newish kind of look and doesn't you know i don't look like i'm riding a bike from the olden days you know i look like i'm wearing a, riding a modern bike you're going to get the hunter 350 and all all three of those 350s will all work great in town. Now, I would, if you were totally looking, like you said, I don't care about how it looks or I don't have any image issues, which, you know, I suppose for people like that, I, I'm certainly not that way. But you just said, I just want the best one for the city. The Hunter 350 is that bike. It's designed to be that, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the flashiest of the three. It's not the coolest of the three but it's, it's the most agile, it's the least expensive, and it's the lightest of the three. So you have, you know, those are a lot of good features that a lot of people will be attracted to. I mean, it's not like the other bikes, and you know, it's just a few hundred dollars difference. It's not like you're paying $6,000 for a classic, you know, you're just, it's still in the, in the 4,000s, you know, the mid 4,000s. So, you know, you're still looking at inexpensive motorcycles, but the Hunter kind of takes, takes control from a functionality standpoint for as, as an urban motorcycle compared to it's it's 350 brothers or sisters or siblings or however you want to put it and uh yeah so <laughs> right. so i'm uh you know i was really impressed by it it's, it was just a you know 
if you're riding around town, you like to be cool. And this bike looks cool. It gets positive attention and it should, because uh, like I said, the paint and the styling is good and it has a purposeful look, you know? And so, yeah, I wouldn't take it out in, if, if you're looking for a Canyon bike and you're kind of looking to, you know, I'm, I'm looking to go into the sport world and I want to move forward. You're, you, again, you're looking at the Yamaha MT-03, the uh, Z400 or the uh, CB, Honda CB300F. That's, that's those bikes. This bike is, I would, let's just say it's strictly a, an urban motorcycle. You can, again, you can ride it out in the, with your friends. And if they say, let's go out to the boonies and go ride around, you can go with them rest assured that they will be going a lot faster than you and you, they'll have to wait up for you at each, each stop. And, uh, you know, there's no pushing it, no matter how hard you twist that throttle, it's only going to go 20 horsepower worth of, of speed and 400 pounds. So, you know, but you, at least you'll have the handling, you'll have the braking. If you know that that rear brake does actually work and it's something that you want to uh, take advantage of. It sounds as though it basically sort of met all your expectations. There wasn't any any disappointment. It was sort of exactly as expected for the price point and for its image and, and for what it was intended. Well, uh, you know, I don't I try not to go in with a lot of expectations in the tests. I like I like the motorcycle to reveal itself to me. And I'll say what I was is I was perfectly satisfied that it did what it was supposed to do. You know, OK. It, all right that's it, a better way of saying it all right yeah i mean that's just you know everybody has it's funny I, I, a lot of my uh you know colleagues not here at the magazine because i'm always mainly you know pounding that into people's head don't have expectations don't say something is that that bike was better than i expected it's like well why did you have expectations go in without expectations and that's the ultimate motorcycling <laughs> that's how we try to you know it's, it's impossible to have no expectations of course but we try to go in with as few expectations as possible and let the motorcycle tell us what it is rather than us say, well, this is what we think you are. Let's see how you do, you know? And so I really, I mean, I had some uh, idea of what it was going to be because I've ridden the other 350s. So I, I know what they are, uh, but the bike really worked well. I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoy the other, you know, I enjoy the special 350. I'm sorry. I enjoy the classic 350 and the Meteor 350 in different ways. Uh, for the three of them, uh, yeah, it makes this, this is the one that makes sense as the urban motorcycle from a purely functional standpoint. So you have to decide if function is, is your number one goal or stylishness and if, if you want the style of the meteor 350 or the classic 350 then they're there for you but if you say hey you know what this bike looks cool it works it works better than the others in town and this is what i want and so you you would be well well served by getting this motorcycle that makes sense terrific it makes total sense all right hey thanks a lot appreciate your insights as always thank you very much all right bye There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of riders meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option 
for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque and it provides you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. In our second segment, Editor-at-Large Neil Bailey chats with Drew Alexander. Drew has spent his career as parts manager for both Bob's BMW and Batley's BMW dealerships in Maryland. And indeed, he's now returned to Bob's famous dealership. But Drew is a lot more than that. He's the president of his local BMW club, and he's on the board of the National BMW Riders Association. He's actually hosting the upcoming rally in West Virginia in September. I was born in a small little hamlet called Brooklyn, New York in 1961. And uh, what was the population of that little hamlet? So it was known as the fourth largest city in the United States at that time. So that is a small hamlet, really. Yeah, just just that. Well, actually, funny thing about Brooklyn is that we have neighborhoods instead of towns. And uh, each little neighborhood was an island unto itself. You really didn't get to explore outside the island uh, that you lived on until you got your first means of transportation, which was a bicycle. And that allowed you to branch out a little further. So tell me, tell me about mom and dad a little bit. Uh, you know, so, so I was born right at the end of the baby boom era. And somehow I think my father planned his life to be, uh, get a wife, get a dog, have two kids and have a pretty normal life in existence. So I have an older brother who uh, passed away back in 2002. I have an older sister, and that leaves me to be the third child in uh, my father's scenario. So it was okay. Um, I was the baby of the family. Um, We had to move from one neighborhood, Park Slope, to Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which was a uh, tree-lined, it was a really nice place to grow up. Mom was uh, the typical... Tupperware, body, Betty Crocker, mom that tried to put everything together and unfortunately burnt the hell out of it, no matter what it was. Um, she was known for her black and frozen peas. Sounds like she went to culinary school with my mother. Oh, I believe your mom boiled everything out of it. My mom burnt it to a crisp. That's what did away the flavor right there. So yeah. needless to say, we didn't have trichognosis in our house. Mm. The pork was cooked beyond recognition. Um, but so a nice little existence there and uh, grew up uh, in, a, in a nice household. And I was the baby of the family until my younger brother, Kevin, was born. And then I was relegated to be the third of the fourth wheel uh, in, the, in, the, in the childhood uh, car that we drove around. So, so before, we, before we get to your 
first motorcycle. Um, there's a story that I want you to tell about your grandfather here, because I think it really shows and shapes a lot of who you are as a person and your character and your personality. So before we go to your first motorcycle, I really want to hear the Jack Duberstein story. Now, there's many Jack Duberstein stories, but I think I, uh, uh, you're talking about how I got my first dog. You did, yeah. So your first dog came yeah, before your yeah. first motorcycle. My first dog did become for the first motorcycle. So my grandfather was uh, uh, a hell of a man and uh, a tough Lower East Side Jewish guy that worked the room like nobody's business. And he was also, he, he set the law of what was right and what was wrong and taught us things, not by saying it, but by doing it. He also loved uh, his, his big Cadillacs. So he, uh, every two years, he would get a brand new Cadillac. And one time, my brother, Kevin, two years younger than I am, two and a half, maybe even three, and I are sitting in the backseat of his Cadillac, and we're driving down Coney Island Avenue. Well, all of a sudden, my grandfather makes a U-turn across four lanes of traffic, stops the car, and uh, gets out. And we see him come up to this guy, and then this guy fall down to his knees, bleeding from his nose. And in my grandfather's arm, small little dog, um, who looked pretty fearful of everybody, and Jack Duberstein put it in the back seat and said, you guys wanted a dog, here's your damn dog. And then proceeded to tell me, and my brother, Kevin, that out of the corner of his eye, he saw this one man who had the dog beating poor Mike, the dog, with a metal chain. And grandfather made the U-turn, took matters into his own hands, and uh, we stole a dog. And that Mike, the dog, was just such an incredible uh, story, an incredible lesson, and, and an incredible dog. So I believe that's what you were talking about, right? Yeah, I just feel like the, the, this Jack Duberstein character, you know, boxing permission, you know, mm. whipping guys beside the road to give you kids a dog, tough love. I always like that story of you guys sliding around the backseat of his new Cadillac as kids and uh, kind of. Yeah, it's, like it's a great story. And, uh, and it really, you know, we all know that there are good guys and there are bad guys and really the the whole thing is there are good decisions and bad decisions that you make and it's in a split second that you can decide whether you're going to be a good guy or a bad guy my grandfather yeah. always told us to be good guys i like that so when when so mike the dog was a big part of life jack Duberstein. when did your first motorcycle come into play and and how and why what what well here in the United States, we were, we were fortunate in the early 70s to have a good amount of motorcycling on TV and around. So I, I guess the, the first point that I knew that I was going to ride um, was in the summer of 71 when I rode my Schwinn Stingray to the Harbor Theater on, 94, on 92nd Street and 4th Avenue, and I saw On Any Sunday. And that was such an iconic film, and it was such a, a fun thing to watch. Everybody having a really great time. Steve McQueen, Malcolm Smith, 
all these wonderful characters, you know, uh, uh, Dave Aldano, I'm, the list goes on and on. Um, and it made me want to ride a motorcycle. In 71, there weren't a lot of people riding here in the United States, at least. They were pretty much all uh, belonged to the 1% club or maybe just got out of uh, the military and had some extra cash and they bought motorcycles. But it certainly wasn't like it is today where everybody rides. So that's, that planted a seed in young Drew's head at age 11. When did that seed sort of sprout into a motorcycle for you? Well, so I, I started uh, college, uh, Fordham University, and I had a part-time job as a bicycle messenger. And one of the guys that was also a messenger convinced me to uh, go in half on a CV350. And uh, we were going to use that to increase our uh, runs, as we would call it, and make more money as messengers. Bicycle messengers could carry documents and such. But if you had a motorcycle, you got to carry film canisters out to the airport. And so you got mileage and then you got the weight of whatever you're carrying too. That figured into some strange formula on how you got more money in your pocket. So, so that started, that was my first bike and that's when it really caught. I, I, I knew that I had uh, the fever to ride. I just didn't know that it was going to be something that I would do for the rest of my life. So we rode the CB350 into the ground. Um, I actually managed to save some money instead of spending it on uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll and bought a Yamaha SX650. And that was really my first real bike that I had. And I remember uh, when I got the bike, and this is kind of how I, I fit into the whole thing. One of the reasons that I, I wanted a motorcycle was because I saw a shot perfecto jacket beautiful leather jacket just like uh marlon brando wore in the wild one it was just it was that kind of jacket and i wanted one but i wanted i wanted a reason to have one so when i bought the sx650 i then saved up enough money to buy a shop perfecto jacket and tore around the streets of new york looking like a badass and sometimes acting like a fool so what what age were you then uh, this was the formative years, uh, 18, 19, 20. This would have been almost a decade after you saw On Any Sunday. So had you, were you reading motorcycle magazines prolifically or were you just being subliminally influenced by these motorcycle movies, you know, Marlon Brando? So it, it was definitely subliminal, uh, you know, and we had a lot of characters to watch in the meantime. I mean, every red-blooded American remembers Ponch and John from Chips and Evil Knievel jumping motorcycles on wide water sports. But it was also the idea that there was something forbidden about a motorcycle. No parent wanted their child to ride a motorcycle. You know, you see the guys that were riding bikes and and they looked like hell on wheels and Hell's Angels rolled through Bay Ridge on a regular basis. And they were just, they were just badasses and uh, nonconformists. And somehow I started identifying with 
the nonconformist side. I was never really much of a badass until uh, until very recently, and I think that's just becoming a cranky old man. But uh, so but really... so <laughs> <laughs> the the funny thing is, I, and I remember it all too well. Uh, the 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 scenes of riding with my parents in the backseat of their car and seeing a guy on a motorcycle and wishing that I was that guy that just you know from the time I was 10 all the way to when I was that guy that that was the thing I really I felt that the motorcycle that was my freedom that was my rebellion that was uh my angst everything rolled up into one so so it's definitely a statement more than just a toy to play around with. Yeah, I think it's it 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 is interesting. Like, obviously, we live in a world where people are, are you know, constantly trying to sell motorcycles, make motorcycling attractive. And I can think about being, uh, you know, somewhere in between eleven and 18, 15, 16 years of age, and riding the bus or the train between England and Scotland, and you know looking out of the window and sort of daydreaming about what it would be like to be, if I was actually riding along beside the train on a dirt bike, jumping over hedgerows and sort of fantasizing about being on a motorcycle while I was stuck in this train or this bus. So I suppose those seeds in us through movies and whatever, I don't know, they're, they're, they're pretty strong. It's a pretty strong pull for us to get on two wheels. Well, I think, you know, you just brought up something with movies and such. I remember Westerns were always, you know, the thing as we were growing up as kids. And the modern day horse is the motorcycle. Uh, in a way, we all, we're all just kids wanting to be cowboys. Uh, riding across country, you know, going down trails that very few follow, those types of things. Yeah, that's, that's what made the American cowboy such an iconic, romantic figure. Just he and his horse out on the lonesome prairie. And every once in a while, you get that on a bike, and man, what a feeling. So you had your, how long did you keep your XS650, and what type of riding did you do on it? Did you do deliveries, or was it for picking up chicks, going on trips? Or so it was definitely, uh, I, I had this one move where I would take it around a corner, and if I saw a couple of girls there, I'd go from uh, third down to second and up the tire a little bit and see if they looked at me from their in my my side view mirror. They never really looked, but you know, I I had these visions of you know picking up some wonderful woman and and riding off into the sunset. Never really happened on a motorcycle, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I did a couple of trips. Um, mainly, it was really it was bombing around New York City, you know, and and that in itself is, is such a a wild ride that it was ridiculous. But Sunday mornings, we'd go up to a place called Marcus's Dairy up in Connecticut. And there'd be a bunch of guys on motorcycles hanging out and talking. I had a, my best friend and I, we did a couple rides up to New Hampshire, to Laconia. We did one ride to go see uh, the Daytona 200. I think that was the longest ride that I went on in my early riding days down to Daytona. And uh, I remember coming back from that thinking, that was, that, was, that was just awful, you know? We're riding on the highway for what seemed like hours and hours and hours and just droned on. 
until we reached our destination. I mean, Brooklyn down to Daytona Beach, I mean, it's got to be in a car that's 12 hours of driving, right? More. Yes, on 95, which even at that time was the most populated, boring road uh, in existence, at least here in the United States. Um, but, you know, we never really thought about the adventures of uh, back roads and, and doing that. Back when we were riding back then, it was, you know, riding our bikes around town or else taking our bikes to go someplace. We never really thought about just going out for a ride. I mean, it it's interesting that the Daytona 200 just ran here a couple of days ago, which obviously dates us here into early March of 2023. But tell us about the scene in bike week back then. I mean, you're talking about what, very early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. I mean, it was uh, 83 or 84. Uh, it was, it was, it certainly wasn't what bike week is nowadays. It was the Daytona 200. So, you know, we went down there and I remember we left on a Thursday night. We got down there on a Friday night. We watched the races and we left on a Sunday morning. So it wasn't this whole elongated trip. We went down to go see the races, but we had such a great time because back then, well, even nowadays, every once in a while, you get it. Everybody was open in the pits. You know, you could wander around pretty freely and uh, somebody would offer you a beer or, you know, you, you get to meet the legends. Uh, uh, I remember I, I we somehow wound up by Gary Nixon's uh, pit. And I said something smart ass because I'm a kid from Brooklyn, New York. And he flicked a cigarette butt at me. And I was like, this is just, this is just unbelievably cool. <laughs> Gary Nixon just flicked a cigarette butt at me, you know? So we didn't have the kind of uh, coverage that we have nowadays. So it was really just reading about it in road racing world. That was, that was the thing, you know? And we knew, you know, Jimmy Adamo was a, a local uh, Long Island guy, so we knew him um, and we knew about him, but it was just, it was an amazing time. It was, it, it really was, I guess, like the beginning of stock car race. It wasn't like NASCAR. Yeah, you just have guys showing up in vans. It's a lot of Ford Econoline vans with, with really expensive motorcycles jammed in the back. And when the motorcycles weren't jammed in the back, it was usually the rider sleeping in it, you know? So you, we didn't have these large motor coaches and all the support back then, so. Who were the top riders back in the day when you were going to see the Daytona 200? I mean, you know, it was it was back and Gary Nixon was definitely in it. Jay Springsteen was there. Um, Duhamel, I, I get them a little mixed up between that and Laconia. But we had guys coming over. I think Barry Sheen was there, although I didn't really know who Barry Sheen was because I just knew a couple of American racers. Uh, Eddie Lawson was certainly there. There were, you know, I, Schwantz, maybe. But these, this is when they were up and coming, so nobody really knew them. You know? Right. Did Bike Week become quite a regular thing? Was it a one-off or...? Well, it's funny because for a number of years, my motorcycling was not as involved in my life as it is nowadays. And, you know, um, 
maybe I should say. So I work uh, at uh, Bob's BMW and Ducati as a parts guy, and I've done that for the past 25 years. Um, so I've, I've really have gone into the motorcycle lifestyle in quite a big way. Um, beforehand, it was just kind of a weekend thing that we would do. Um, but, you know, I started going back to Daytona in 2003 with the Boxer Cup Series. The BMW had a Boxer Cup Series, which I thought was really great. And then for several years, I would go down for the races. And, and I, if I go down now, I'll still just go down for the races. Everything else is really just meringue for me. Mm. I, I want the lemon pie. You know, I want to see the race. That that Daytona 200 is uh, it's an amazing thing to watch. So, and this past weekend showed it quite well. So, yeah, I was um, I was a little behind you. Um, probably didn't start going across the Daytona more till the late 80s, but I must admit it did seem in those times and maybe it's because we didn't have influence to so much else the way we do these days it just seemed like it was the be all and end all of the year the daytona 200 the big race this was the big event of the year and it seemed like there were huge crowds we would have to stake our spot on the fence in the horseshoe where we went every year early with our coolers and our chairs to make sure we got a spot to watch the race well see and, and nowadays there are more people hanging out um in the bars down uh, you know along <laughs> along a1a than there are in the, the stands are, are incredibly empty so yeah which is a shame yeah yeah so you're riding your xs 650 um you're not sort of super super involved i mean tell me the chronology of this you end up uh, working in disaster relief for the american red cross which is a really key part to more the end of your life story that we can talk about in a minute so was that Kind of your first job out of college? Did you do other things? Yeah, I worked at a radio station, uh, WLIR, out on Long Island for a year and a half. And uh, it was really fun. And I had way too much fun. And I needed to uh, take stock in my life and get <laughs> get myself on a, uh, on a more uh, straight and narrow path. I was uh, burning the candle at the end and in the middle when I was working on the radio. Uh, so I started off as a disaster relief worker in New York City uh, for the American Red Cross and uh, often showed up, you know, at apartment fires on a motorcycle with my Red Cross jumpsuit on and my clipboard in hand and uh, had a pretty successful career with uh, the American Red Cross. Uh, met my wife in the elevator at the American Red Cross. And then we decided that... Uh, New York City was really not, <laughs> this was back in the mid nineties. New York City didn't have everything that I, I, I remembered it offering. And so we decided to move to the Maryland area. Um, got a very good job um, for a couple of years and then got totally burnt out on it. Uh, in that time, my parents had passed away and they left me some money. So I was able to upgrade my, uh, Yamaha SX650 that I had had for quite a few years, put quite a few miles on it, and I bought a K75S from Bob's BMW. So this is this is the serendipitous path crossing that really led you to your career in motorcycling, right? You sell the X650, you get the K75, which 
I think if I'm not wrong, was has been your favorite bike of your life, right? Well, it certainly is the one that I miss the most, have the most regrets about not having. Um, the motorcycle and I parted not on the best of terms. And uh, we can talk about that in a moment. But yeah, I, I, my salesman was this great old Hungarian guy, uh, Paul Mahalka. And he invited me to go on a ride with him. And I was a hotshot and I thought, oh, this is great, you know. 70 year old guy on an rt it's going to be pretty boring well within the first mile and a half he left me in the dust i couldn't see his brake light anymore the guy rode like nobody's business as fast and smooth as ice i mean he just he flew i never saw a brake light come on everything was done with the clutch the gears and his throttle and uh we started riding together um our job came up at bob's bmw and i thought why not so that was you know one of those paradigm shifts in life where you decide to do something that you really think is going to be fun as opposed to just getting a paycheck so when it has been when you went to bob's bmw what was your what was your age then and what was your job position or what was your job title 30 uh 38 years old and I was a parts guy. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing after, you know, a career in disaster relief and with the Red Cross and other things, I mean, this was, it's kind of an interesting career move. It's not a, it's not a massive step forward in a, in a career in terms of moving yourself financially forward, right? Oh, no, 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 absolutely not. No, it's a, it, it's one of those moves where everybody goes what the hell are you doing you know so and i went into it i had i really had no idea what the hell i was doing so literally and figuratively um i certainly had never worked in a parts place mm. i uh knew about motorcycles but i wasn't really like a gearhead gearhead i just decided that it would be something fun to do and learn and that led me down the path that I am on now. Tell us about that early part of your career at Bob's and then what, how you end up leaving. And that sort of produced a pretty interesting journey for you. Life, <laughs> you make decisions and sometimes they're spur of the moments. And then you realize that they were absolutely the necessary step. Um, left Bob's to go to another BMW shop in the area. Batley Cycles and Devin Batley was the owner who was an AMA racer and I actually remembered his name uh, from those days and he, did, he, he was he was he was a good racer um, I don't think he was you know very flashy he, he, he won he showed up he got his points and uh, he won some and he lost some and you know like so many other racers in uh, their lives good days and bad days well I, I i was fortunate enough to be in this racing culture and uh, uh things happened that uh i found myself being invited to moto gp at laguna seca uh, to help a friend with a video project and uh the video was starring fabio who the i can't believe it's not butter guy is also 
a huge motorcycle aficionado. He's a, a collector and a rider. And while we were uh, doing this video, he and I became pretty good friends. Before you run off into the sunset with Fabio, um, you know, on the beaches of California, just fill me a little bit about the timeline at Bob's and what caused you to leave. Because I think this is a, an interesting part of your development as a human too. Well, it, it, was, it was a tough time. So being a New Yorker, having worked in disaster relief services, um, I got to know the city very, very well. And this was, I left in 2002, in the beginning part of 2002. Um, my brother, Jim, I'll step back. My brother, Jim, had gotten me the job working with the American Red Cross. He had worked for uh, the Office of Emergency Management in New York City and uh, was very, very successful at it. And uh, the summer, August of 2001, Jim was diagnosed with uh, a very rare form of thyroid cancer. And we still don't know the origins of it, but um, he was given a, a, a pretty grim prognosis. And so that was August of 2001. In September of 2001, I think the entire United States changed. And uh, my brother Jim was uh, at his job on September 11th when uh, uh, the terrorist acts occurred. And uh, it was a monumental thing. It really was a huge, huge thing. I went up to New York, um, helped out where I could, and felt this incredible sense of loss. And Brother Jim, was his health was failing and failing and failing. So I was spending more time up in New York, being with him, watching the city that I loved uh, try to pull itself out from the ashes and uh, realized uh, that I needed a change of some sort, and I don't know what that was. And unfortunately, at that time, uh, uh, a little bit after September 11th, my brother Jim passed away, and that kind of led me to uh, leave Bob's BMW in, in a weird and strange kind of way. And I, I needed to take a break from the surroundings that were somewhat comfortable and put myself into another situation uh, because there was a lot of association, I guess would be the best way of putting it um, with working at Bob's and at that time. So that uh, led me to Batley Cycles. Did you leave uh, Bob's on good terms? No, 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 no. In fact, I, I think uh, there were some heated words discussed. And uh, as I left, uh, my parting words were I quit. And I uh, drove from Bob's to uh, Batley's and offered my services there. And that started uh, my uh, job at Batley Cycles. Well, so you knew Devin as a, a racer and a successful racer, obviously. So you're, how long were you with Batley's in total? Uh, in total, 12 and a half, 13 years. And that was an interesting 
situation. I mean, so are you still on the case? Well, that was an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, where did the incident with the K-75, did that happen while you were at Bob's or was that a bad? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, going back, uh, and that was yet another big part of the whole scenario. So going back to Bob's, one evening uh, I left work at Bob's BMW. And I live about 42 miles away. Part of the trip is along I-70, a major interstate. So uh, November 1st, 1999, I left Bob's. It was the first day of going back to Eastern Standard Time. So the week before it was sunny on my ride home. And on November 1st, it was absolute pitch black. Cruising along I-70, I was in the left-hand lane and uh, saw the green eyeball of death pop its head out of uh, some bushes in the median of the road. And it turned out to be a very, very large deer. And so uh, uh, the deer and my motorcycle crossed paths and uh, the deer was eviscerated and blown up beyond recognition. The motorcycle was snapped in half at the triple tree. And I was lying in the middle of I-70 in rush hour traffic with uh, two severely broken legs. So a helicopter landed, took me to shock trauma. I spent 17 days there, um, then spent a good three and a half months in a hospital bed, non-weight bearing. and. Uh, Anytime I would leave the house, it would be in the back of an ambulance to go to doctor's appointments and such. And so then I eventually learned how to walk on crutches after a wheelchair and then with a cane. And once I was free with a cane, I uh, swung my leg over a CB750 that I had purchased while I was recuperating. So uh, within never a year, I was back in the wild. That, no. No, if in fact anything, Neil, there was no question that I was not going to ride again. I think that part of my physical therapy was the determination to ride again. That got me walking. That got me moving. That gave me uh, inspiration to get my ass out of bed and swing my leg over a bike and start riding again. So. And how did it affect how did it affect Liz, your wife? I mean, was she profoundly so um, I, I remember so the helicopter ride over, they gave me something wonderful. I think it was morphine, and I drifted off. I remember waking up and hearing the doctor say, "Well, he may never walk again to my wife." And then she saw. The, the extent of the injuries and it was, they, they were absolutely amazing you know one leg i've got a 16 inch rod and 72 pins the other leg was uh, a 16 inch rod eight screws a bone graft operation uh, they were pretty well mangled and uh, on a sidebar note uh, about two months before the accident six weeks before the accident i had just received my first real Vance and leather jacket and riding pants with armor. And I was wearing it that night. 
and they were cut off of me because they were absolutely covered in deer fat and blood and all this other stuff. And uh, had I not been wearing those pants with the armor, I'm, I'm quite certain I would have remained in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. Would have been the best of the scenario. Probably would have been a lot worse. So, so, so talk about uh, wasting your money on good gear. That was the best money I ever spent for uh, <laughs> not really breaking in my uh, gear. I mean, they were brand new. So, or what I consider brand new. Um, so, so, but uh, yeah, there was no question I was going to ride again. And in fact, after that, I started riding with a little more purpose and started doing things with a little more drive and uh, really started to think about the motorcycling community and how they rallied around me and how I could uh, pay them back. How, um, and I'm sure Bob, knowing him as I do, is probably extremely supportive of you through that time. They had to hold your job or how did that work out? So they held my job. They gave me some part-time work. Um, I had <laughs> some, some money left over from uh, my mom passing and we had credit cards and that got us through the, the year of hospital bills and rehab and all the other things that went along with it. So, so, and then I started working part-time slowly and then uh, worked more and more and more. Well, I hate to say it, it's not the most pleasant subject to talk about on a most local podcast to talk about injuries and stuff, but I think, you know, for a lot of us that reach this ripe old age, six decades in, this is, this is a part of, has unfortunately been a big part of our most likely story sometimes. So you um, obviously came out of it very well in terms of recovery. Um, maybe you didn't have the best exit from Bob's, but that's going to be a happy ending later. And you spend this 12 and a half years really at Batley's and you, you were more than just an employee at Batley's really, weren't you? you I think you became a very good friend with Devon and it created a lot of adventures, like you said, like MotoGP and chumming with Fabio and a lot of different things going on. So perhaps give us a snapshot of your life uh, with Devon Batley. Well, the, the, the great part was at that time, I was working, you know, at a BMW shop at Bob's. And then all of a sudden I was working at a Harley Davidson, Ducati, Yamaha, Buell and BMW dealer. And so I had all of these bikes and also uh, we were the first wor world's first Buell dealer and the world's first Modus dealer way back when so um so it gave me an opportunity to uh, take time off to do some traveling to work on some outside projects because it was it was a motorcycle shop you know and they liked having their guys showing up at different places representing Batley's you know in the Batley name so Laguna Seca, uh, Indy when that was going on, uh, 
Circuit of the Americas. I saw the best races at MotoGP, but I also was going down to Daytona to uh, uh, both bike weeks, the October one and uh, the March one uh, for the races and to vend. And I really got to know a different circle of riders uh, while I was at Batley. So uh, Lyle Lovett was a good friend of the shop. Uh, we had Keanu Reeves come in quite a few times. I did. The name dropping will go on, but perhaps the weirdest and most wonderful friendship that I got in my time in Batley's was with uh, Ted Koppel. Ted Koppel, the news anchor, um, had bought uh, an R1100R from Batley Cycles. And a couple of times he had asked me to pick up his bike and bring it into the shop. And uh, his son's name was Drew also. And we had a great time talking with each other. And fortunately, Drew uh, uh, had an early demise and not the best of ways. And uh, the motorcycle that Ted had loaned him wound up in impound and uh, up Spanish Harlem in New York. And uh, his son Drew had passed away over Memorial Day weekend. And Ted called me up and asked if I could get a spare key for his motorcycle. And I asked him how he was going to get his motorcycle back home. And he had no idea. And I said, Ted, I'll get the spare key and I'll go up and I'll get the bike. And, and for me, that was the only way that I could help a grieving father deal with, you know, just some stuff. And at that point, we sat down for several hours. We talked quite a bit. And, uh, an incredibly wonderful, wonderful man. So, so we get these friendships along the way and motorcycles tends to be the catalyst for them because with Fabio and with anybody that I've met, they have a certain celebrity status, but they're always riders. I think that that's an important thing. And tell me a little bit more about Devon because, you know, self-made man he's done amazing things in not only racing but collecting and dealerships and uh yes i say you spent 12 and a half years with him so he's definitely an interesting guy um he's very unassuming when you see him at first in fact you probably wouldn't know that he was an ama racer or that he had an incredibly successful Harley dealership, that he was the person to help Eric Buell down the path with Harley Davidson. Um, he sponsored number uh, a lot of racers throughout uh, the course of uh, owning the dealership, uh, including a young Ukrainian racer um, who, unfortunately, I, I don't know what he's doing now. I can imagine he's fighting the good fight over in Ukraine. But uh, this kid was set to go uh, at least world super sport. Uh, Nick Callion is, is his name. So, um, and who knows, he may reemerge in his 20s after, after the whole thing is done over in Ukraine and become a racer again. But Devin 
number one wasn't the typical racer, six two and kind of a big build. And most of the racers I know are uh, at best five eight and <laughs> 140 pounds. So, so, but the nice thing about Devin, because of his frame, uh, when he would go into turns hot, all you'd have to do is sit up and slow down. You know, he created such a, an effect, um, natural braking, as you would call it. Um, it's just an interesting thing. And he's a character to travel with just because he knows everybody in the motorcycle world. You know, he was, he was there in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and certainly there in the early 2000s when motorcycling exploded here in the United States. It was uh, an incredible phenomenon. And he had a very successful Harley Davidson dealership right outside of Washington, D.C. So, uh, so he started the business and fortunately the business took off big time. So, so, uh, and being in DC, you, we have a lot of, uh, people coming in and out that, uh, <laughs> became customers of Batley, Harley Davidson, especially, uh, we had princes from the middle East. We had diplomats from all over the world whenever they were in the area. Um, we showed them a great time and they bought motorcycles. Mike Tyson, um, fortunately or unfortunately, bought two BMWs from Devon. Um, Mike was not the best motorcyclist. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, on his ride from the dealership, uh, I was told that he uh, <laughs> dropped his K1200 LT in the middle of uh, the road and uh, Fall to get it picked up. And so I don't know if he ever rode after that little experience or not. So, but uh, it was kind of a funny thing. So, so Devin's an interesting cat and he's definitely uh, a, a great tribute to uh, uh, the 1980s racers. That's for sure. What, what were you riding during those days? Uh, so my uh, snapped in half K75S um became a honda nighthawk and then when i started working at devon's shop i uh lucked into a k1200 rs that came in as a wreck but it wasn't really all too terrible of a wreck um the rear subframe was tweaked a little bit and the body panels were rashed and i i, I bought it cheap and uh fixed it up and rode that uh, rode that around forever so until uh <laughs> until until the rear main seal went and contaminated the clutch and that is a costly and time consuming and way beyond my pay grade kind of job so uh that, that led myself to other motorcycles so i still have the k12 rs but right now it's nothing more than uh than, than a garden gnome so there's a number of there's a number of things going on in this time period that really become quite life changing to you, um, and then life life kicks into another gear, really, right? Well, the the interesting part is uh, I tend to stack things. So 
while I was working at Batley's, uh, I was asked to co-host a radio show on WJFK, which is uh, an FM uh, radio show, sports related. And they asked me to co-host a motorcycle radio show. And that gave me entree to a lot of people and a lot of uh, uh, perks. Didn't pay anything, but the perks were just phenomenal. Um, and so I had the opportunity of uh, doing that, co-hosting that show for a number of years. Um, there's four or five. And during the course of that, I get to choose various guests. And I remember reading an article about uh, a guy from Speed TV that was doing his own show called Neil Bailey Rides. And I thought that that would be a, a great interview. And so I had you on the show in 2013, I believe it was. And we really hit it off. And then we met at Vintage Fest. And that kind of sealed us as, uh, well, no, that didn't seal us as lifelong mates. You're a nice guy. We had a good rapport going on. It was, I thought, a, a great interview. Um, and then a couple conversations on the phone led you to invite me to go out for a ride. And that to me was probably singularly one of the most life-changing experiences that I had. Well, I, I think you might need to explain where I uh, asked you to ride. <laughs> the funny part is uh, our first ride, you were doing an article, and I'm trying to think of the magazine, and I can't remember what it was. I think it was Motorcyclist. Was it? Okay, Motorcyclist. And uh, you asked me uh, if I wanted to go ride in Pocahontas County, West Virginia. And I thought it'd be kind of a fun thing to do. I could always get time off from work. Everybody knew ba Neil Bailey from Speed TV and from all of the different articles that they read. And uh, I said, what the hell? And I decided to uh, borrow our friends, Harley Davidson, and ride down to uh, Pocahontas County to meet up with you. And uh, I think right away, we just, we, we hit it off pretty well. And I remember that first ride as we were going, I'm trying to think, going up uh, Route 150, the scenic highway. We just had one of these magical moments where we we're getting close to dusk and I'm looking for deer. And you and I are riding along and we see that bear cross over the road. And it flashed in my mind that there's no cell phone service in Pocahontas County, West Virginia. If I get <laughs> taken out by a bear, the bear will probably survive and then I'll be eaten by a bear. But at least I'll be with Neil Bailey and he's a great storyteller. So he'll be able to regale the story for generations upon generations. But and it has been very disappointing to me because much as I like you, it would have been a much better story. What a great headline that would have been. And yeah. eaten by bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, he said bear right, and I turned to the right, and there was the bear <laughs> on the right. It's funny because obviously there's so much uh, in the life of motorcycling um, that you could bring to the table, and we have to kind of hop over the, the bricks of experience and leave a lot behind. But you know, that was a 
very very special period i think when i met you because i think we had that ride and one of the key elements to that ride was something that i think is very relevant today we spent literally the whole time that we were together riding and having you know, meals and sharing uh, hotel accommodation you know staying in the same hotel in the evenings was there was no cell phone service so we were pretty much engaged in the narrative and the dialogue of our lives i think that's maybe more than more the reason that we created such a firm friendship which now has gone on for over a decade it, it made us live in the moment and i think that that in essence is what a, a motorcyclist is it's just a person living in that moment and that moment may last for years and years and years but the idea of being in that moment is such a huge thing and uh I remember you asking me to join you uh, to go to on a, another adventure in South Africa. And that was truly an adventure. So pick that one up for me. Well, so for our listeners, Neil and I, you know, we, we talked a lot that weekend and I had an invitation to go to South Africa. And I'd never really traveled outside of the country except once to uh wedding in Poland and South Africa was a far off place and uh, Neil's reason for going was to raise money for uh, his charity Wellspring International Outreach and met a woman the year prior uh, who was living into one of the absolute hovels of uh, the settlements the stuff that you see on the sally struthers commercials for feed the children that was the abject poverty that that this woman was living in with her six grandchildren so neil was putting together a ride uh to benefit this woman to help build a better home for them and i thought it'd be great to ride in south africa and as i was riding home from our weekend in pocahontas I came to the conclusion that I was going to go to South Africa, but I wasn't going to go ride. I would try to land, put the boots on the ground, as they say, and find this woman and have a home built for her. And so Neil and I went out and we started fundraising and bothering all of our friends and getting them to ride over checks to us and, uh, I bought my airplane ticket. I made accommodations uh, in a small town, White River, South Africa, part of the Lowveld. And uh, Neil went off to Cape Town where he started his ride. And the idea was that we were going to meet up 12 days later and see what I had accomplished. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea where I was going. I stupidly did a nonstop flight to Joburg, South Africa, which from Washington, D.C. is just over 18 hours. And if anyone hasn't ridden in a jet for 18 hours straight, feel fortunate that you haven't. <laughs> um, I got out of there. I was just absolutely like in a different state. I was in a, in a country in the southern hemisphere where all the toilets went in a different direction kind of um 
everybody spoke differently, everything smelled differently. And I was stuck in the middle of Johannesburg, which apparently is riddled with crime, um, thinking that I was going to travel five hours further, meet a woman who I had no idea, I saw a picture of her, and she went by the name Uma, which I later learned meant grandmother in Afrikaans, and I had a phone number. Oh, and a debit card that Neil had given to me with well over $100,000. So while I thought of uh, running drugs from South Africa for a moment, I decided that I should probably get to White River and, and start the whole process. And constantly communicating with Neil uh, throughout and hearing what a fabulous time that they were having and uh, somehow found our contact. God sent this guy, Charles Sanderson, um, who showed me the ropes, took me into the settlement and uh, introduced me, told everybody what he was doing there. And at one time, the police chief had told me that uh, I was entering into a very dangerous place and uh, his police officers never go in there after dark. So <clears throat> here I was, bright-eyed uh, wanderer, going in there and trying to get a house built in 12 days. And well, Neil, by the time you showed up there, I think we had four walls up and we were getting ready to put the roof on it. So I didn't really accomplish what I wanted to in a timely fashion, but I think all things considered, it was really quite an amazing, amazing trip. Yes, and I think, uh, you know, big hats off to our buddy Johan Kaiser for putting the route together and helping me drag, I think, about 10 people across South Africa in safety. And I think even though you didn't have the house built, I think it was a very impactful moment for the community because, you know, maybe what the listeners might like to hear is what over the next years we went back a number of times you ended up building two houses, two community centers, multiple shoe projects and funded a lot of on the ground projects. And, uh, you know, we're very tireless in your fundraising and uh, putting, and it culminated with you actually putting our own ride together on the Eastern side of South Africa a couple of years ago, pre-COVID. So obviously since COVID our whole lives have changed and everybody's lives have changed, but that was a very an amazing period of our life bouncing back and forward to South Africa and coming back and forward to see you up in the Washington DC area for fundraising. And, and I guess at that time period, another big, big decision came in your life because you, you left uh, Batley's and. Um... Well, Batley's was sold. And I, uh, there's the old expression about burning bridges. And from what I remember in my recollection, the bridge to Bob's BMW was doused in kerosene and then hit with a rocket launcher. So I, I really thought that that, 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 that had gone, that was, uh, I was going to find myself working someplace far away or in some other industry. And then I reached out to Bob and he knew what was going on. And, uh, Speaking with his general manager, now my, uh, my general manager, Joe Southerd, uh, they decided to hire me back as a parts guy. 
So, um, and during that time in my first year at back at Bob's, um, we went to South Africa and I had a bilateral hip replacement and, uh, that was in 2018. We went to South Africa. So I started back at Bob's in March of 2018. They fully rallied around me, gave me the time off. We had an incredibly memorable trip um, back to our uh, little settlement in White River. And uh, then I promptly went and got both hips replaced because I was in terrible, terrible shape. Well, you never actually did ride in South Africa because you always ended up either playing tour guide or working inside the township. So, um... so we've got to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell me about your time at Bob's because obviously you've gone through numerous motorcycles through this process. You're always riding. Um, you've been up and down here to Charlotte to see me for charity rides and a lot of different charity stuff. But um, well, the funny thing is, you know, it's bandied about quite a bit brand loyalty and i work at a bmw now a bmw and ducati dealer might just add there we just have recently become a ducati dealer um and i've liked bmw motorcycles but the loyalty that i felt was not to the motorcycle but to the motorcycle community and the bmw community um especially and so I uh, uh, became the president of our local, uh, vice president and the president of our local BMW club. And uh, then foolishly or half-heartedly or, or, or some drunkenly uh, decided to uh, sit on the board of the BMW Riders Association. And uh, that opened up another big field for me. So taking it on the national level but I'm still the guy that helps out <laughs> any biker that's on the side of the road. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people. So, cause I think it's, it's important not only to uh, ride, but also to be a true rider, you know, and uh, do good things. You know, we, 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 we're fortunate to ride motorcycles and subsequently that, allows us to uh, bring the brother, you know, the friends that we've made through motorcycles. So the, the give back is to help others along the way. And that's what I got to do. And this year um, I get to uh, help run a rally, a national rally uh, in September in Canaan Valley, West Virginia. Joe Viverka and myself will be uh, hosting the BMW RA rally on September 14th through the 17th. So it should be an exciting time. And I hope you're going to join us for that. Absolutely. But this is a big part. I mean, you've been or you've been ride leader, rally leader, you know, fundraiser. Um, This is just an extension of everything you've done throughout your motorcycle career, really with the RA now as a board member and, and putting the rally together. Well, I think, you know, my big thing, and, and this is all part of it, and this really is something that I've learned from you or through you, is that it, it's great to go out for rides, but if you're going to leave an impression, don't make it just be a tire tread, you know? 
leave a good impression, leave something behind that is a memorable experience. I mean, you can share it with your friends. You can share it with strangers. You can uh, see a kid sitting in the back of a station wagon and wave at them as you pass them by, much like it was done to me when I was 10 years old. Um, these are the things that for me as a rider make it really worthwhile. Well, and another interesting thing, you know, obviously you're the parts guy at Bob's BMW and now Ducati, but you know, you worked for a lot of years and had a very good relationship and friendship with Devin Batley, who's made a huge contribution to our motorcycle industry. And now working with Bob, you're with another character in our industry who has made an incredible contribution to the motorcycling world. Um, tell us a bit about Bob, because he really is an amazing and extraordinary man and some something or a person who we can all thank for. He's brought to motorcycling for all of us, really. You know, the passion that I feel for motorcycling and the motorcyclists, really, that, that comes from Bob, you know. He's been in the industry since 1981, selling used parts and BMW parts, and then becoming a dealer principal uh, in 1991, and running a very, very, very successful BMW dealership that's known nationally and internationally. And he really is one of the most knowledgeable uh, people here in the United States regarding BMW motorcyclism, and its history. So as we enter into the 100th year, um, he was asked to uh, have some of his own personal collection on display down at the BMW Car Museum. Um, and I believe that you're going down there or you may have gone down there already, correct? Yes, I'm going to do a little bit of work with them. Uh, Bob has kindly um, put a number of his motorcycles into the display the bmw car club of america is a it's a really really well run um compact museum it's not a huge museum but it's a, it, it hosts some very 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 amazing collections uh, they just finished up with m cars and of course this year they're doing it to celebrate the 100th anniversary of bmw so motorcycles are a little bit out of their wheelhouse so i'm going to be helping them out with that so it's been nice to see some of bob's bikes down there and well, the greatest question that I get asked, and this happens more frequently than I like, is, is there really a Bob? And then I point to Bob and <laughs> say, yeah, there is really a Bob, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, his passion and his drive, that fuels the business. But his love of motorcycles, I mean, that really fuels Bob. So um, he wouldn't be doing what he's doing um, for the money. I can tell you that much. Uh, motorcycle dealers <laughs> start off with a large fortune and end up with a small fortune, but that's only monetary. So I think Bob's riches come from the people that he's encountered, the stories that he has uh, got to tell and the experiences that he's had. And that's really the wealth of it. I would interrupt you and say the experiences he's still having because he's so actively involved. And I would think anybody in your area um, riding through, it's well worth stopping by 
to see Bob's museum and the collection that he's put together over the years. It's it's an eclectic and interesting collection of BMWs for sure, right? Well, it absolutely is. And then the stories that go along with the collection, that that is really the icing on the cake. Um, Bob has an incredible memory and can let you know exactly how he got a certain BMW trinket or how he, you know, had pursued one motorcycle for 25 years before he was able to buy it. So, so that's the neat stuff. But tell me about the bike you're riding at the moment, because I think that's a interesting place to leave you. You're right. And so I've bought two brand new motorcycles in my riding career. Uh, you heard about the Yamaha SX650 that I bought in 1982. And then 40 years later, I bought my second brand new motorcycle, uh, which is a BMW F900XR. It's light, it's quick, it makes me feel young, and it's not the most popular girl in the, in, in, at the prom, which is something that I really like. Yeah, why would you say it's not such a popular bike? Because I know you really love it. Uh, I, I will tell you, it, it, the F900 series is pretty large in Europe. Here in the United States, I think everybody, and rightfully so, um, loves the S1000XR, and that's a very similar bike to the F900XR, or the RR1250GS, and those adventure bikes. Uh, for me, it was the right bike at the right price point, and uh, I had the luxury of taking it out on three very long test rides in hopes that I would find some flaw that would make me <laughs> not want to buy it. But at the end of it, it was there. Everything about that bike, it still gets me. So, And I think that that's the biggest thing that I tell everybody is when they come into the shop. Very much like horses, very much like dogs, you'll find the right mate. Uh, on a motorcycle you know if in fact you get the opportunity to ride a few different bikes and one really gets you don't hesitate just buy the damn thing you know it's if you go to the pound and you see a dog and somehow your eyes meet take the dog home you know it's 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 an intrinsic thing that goes on you know when it happens and uh that F900XR has done it for me and it will continue to do it for me. So I think that that may, unless, you know, who knows, 40 years from now, well, no, I won't be riding a bike. I can tell you that much. So, 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 but uh, I think this may be my last new, new bike in my riding career. So <laughs> here we go. So before you leave us, Drew, there's a beautiful motorcycling story I want you to tell. Um, and this is very indicative of your incredibly generous heart um, and your giving personality and your desire for things to be good and right in the world. So tell me about Paul's GS and what you ended up doing with that. Paul Mahalka, uh, number one, he, he, he was such a great friend, uh, a confidant, a really cool uncle, father for you. He was a lot of things to me. Uh, but ultimately, he was an amazing rider. And he logged well over a million miles on BMW motorcycles. 
The last one that he had uh, was an R1200GS uh, that I actually found for him. Um, he purchased with 9,000 miles on it. And uh, as he was coming to his end of life, he decided that maybe it was too big of a bike for him and decided to get rid of it. And it sold to a club member for, I forget, a pittance. Uh, because when he was ready to get rid of it, it had 181,000 miles on it. And uh, Paul switched over to a scooter. And for four months, rode that scooter and put over 5,000 miles on that. Um, and then passed away. Uh, Scott Kimig, great friend, former president of the local BMW club, um, came to me and offered me his motorcycle. Paul's old motorcycle with 181,000 miles. And I thought that this was too important of a motorcycle to part it out and sell the bits off of it and make some extra money. So I kept it dormant for a few years. And when I went over to Bob's BMW, I decided that I was going to get it up and running again. Uh, Paul has a lovely daughter who, right before he passed away, Paul introduced her to motorcycling. And so last year, after getting Paul's bike back to top-notch condition, well, as top-notch as a 181,000-mile motorcycle could be, um, I shipped it down to his daughter, Ariana, who is now riding around on her father's motorcycle. I don't think she'll put 181,000 miles on it, but I can tell you every time she swings her leg over and sits in the same saddle as her father, it must be such an incredible experience for her. And that's the sheer pleasure that I get is thinking about the idea that somewhere someone is thinking about a good deed that I did. Well, Drew Alexander, the best part about a motorcycle is the human that owns it and you are an incredible human you've been an amazing friend thanks for just sharing some of your stories we could uh, probably do this for a couple of weeks there's so many more in there but um we appreciate you um i appreciate you greatly for the charitable work you've done for our foundation it's as much a part of you as it is me um i know Bob and everybody at Bob's BMW, very appreciative of what you bring to the industry. And I'm sure there's thousands of people out there that you've interacted with that hopefully will get to hear this podcast. will enjoy to learn a little bit more about you. So keep the uh, shiny side up, mate. And um, I will be seeing you soon. Absolutely. Hope to see you on the road soon, Neil.